All right, welcome everybody to today's AMA. Um, <clears throat> questions can be about anything. Please ask your question in a way that um, you are comfortable with other people seeing if this video winds up being split up into publicly released segments that find their way onto YouTube or podcast. You can ask a question in two ways. Please do not ask in the chat box. You can ask by text in the Q&A box, or you can raise your hand and come on the webcam and ask live, so to speak. And uh, priority will be given first to people who raise their hand and come on the webcam, and then to people who ask using their names in the Q&A box. Of course, you can use your name uh, however you want it to be publicly displayed. Um, and you are free to ask questions anonymously, but because I want to be fair to everyone, and make sure that I'm not answering the same person's question over and over again before I before I get to other people. Uh, I will treat all anonymous questions as coming from one person, uh, just to make sure that I cycle through and everyone gets a fair chance to ask their question. All right, let's see what we got in the Q&A box. So Alicia C says, Hi, Chris. Hopefully your big old brain has some thoughts on my question. Hopefully. Let's see. I'm leaving. I'm learning about the genetic variant. Uh, screen is too far away from me. Let me see if I can increase the size of the font. All right, I'm gonna have to look in at it. All right, so Alicia says I'm learning about the the genetic variant. NQ01 homozygous SNP C609T, which appears to be fairly uncommon and possibly quite troublesome. It codes for NADPH quinone 1-dehydrogenase, and some research shows the variant-produced enzyme is not stable and rapidly destroyed. Unfortunately, and then print print. Hypothetically, supplemental riboflavin could possibly help stabilize it similar to MTHFR. If you're familiar, can you please talk through the various jobs the healthy enzyme would perform, especially if involving mitochondrial function, so I can muse about how the homozygous variant might leave a body struggling? Um, not really. I don't think I'm going to be at, at much use off the top of my head with this, um, but let me... I'm going to, all right, I found a way to blow up the size of the font. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, let's, let's see uh, what we get. So So NADPH quinone oxidoreductase or NQO1 catalyzes the two electron reduction of quinones in a wide range of other organic compounds. Its physiological role, and I'm reading from uh, this paper from 2019, NADPH quinone oxidoreductase NQO1, an enzyme which needs just enough mobility in just the right places. Uh, I guess I'll copy this uh, link so that we can throw it in the show notes later. So NADPH quinone oxidoreductase one catalyzes the two electron trans two electron reduction of quinones in a wide range of other organic compounds. Its physiological role is believed to be partly the reduction of free radical load in cells and the detoxification of xenobiotics. 
It also has non-enzymatic functions stabilizing a number of cellular regulators, including P53. Functionally, NQ01 is a homodimer with two active sites formed from residues from both polypeptide chains. Catalysis proceeds via a substituted enzyme mechanism involving a tightly bound FAD cofactor, that's riboflavin. Dicumarol and some structurally related compounds act as competitive inhibitors of NQ01. There's some evidence for negative cooperativity in quinone oxidoreductases, which is most likely to be mediated at least in part by alterations in mobility of the proteins. Human NQ01 is implicated in cancer, which was implied by what they said before about the P53 uh, gene, which acts uh, as an important control of cell cycle. Um, P, uh, human NQ01 is implicated in cancer, is often overexpressed in cancer cells, and as such is considered a possible drug target. Interestingly, a common polymorphic form of human NQ01 P187S is associated with an increased risk of several forms of cancer. This variant has much lower activity in the wild type, primarily due to its substantially reduced affinity for FAD, which results from lower stability. Well, that supports what Alicia was saying about riboflavin uh, might fix the problem. This lower stability results from inappropriately mo inappropriate mobility of key parts of the protein. Thus, NQ01 relies on correct mobility for normal function but inappropriate mobility results in uh, dysfunction and may cause disease. Um, all right, so I mean, I, I don't know too much about it, but right off the bat, it sounds like um, it would be a very good hypothesis that increased riboflavin intake would stabilize it and bring that polymorphism to normal function. And it's uh, going to be involved in detoxifying xenobiotics and protecting against cancer. I mean, that's, that's what I can glean from that. And, um, but I don't, I don't have anything particular to, to offer based on, uh, prior knowledge. So I'm sure that wasn't all that helpful, but that's, uh, all I can, all I can offer you unless you want to dig deeper into that with something more specific for me to look up or to riff on. Thanks, Alicia. Anonymous has the next question. Anonymous says, since there's no test for vitamin K2, only for vitamin K, how do you know if you're getting the right amount, not too much and not too little, if you're supplementing with, with K and E? In your vitamin status manual, you recommend taking vitamin K2 with a source of MK4, MK7, but not exceeding 1,000 micrograms. I don't see a brand that doesn't exceed the recommended value that, that contains both MK4 and MK7. Do you have a recommended brand? So... There's a couple questions there. The first is, um, how do you know if you're getting the right amount given there's no test if you're supplementing with both K and E? Um, so I actually have um, some some balancing recommendations in the in the Cliff Notes that I gave for different situations of balancing fat soluble vitamins, but. I mean, generally speaking, the required amount of vitamin K is around 100 to 200 micrograms and seems to be higher in conditions that involve um, high, high demand for matrix protein or MGP to protect against calcification. And that, that's best shown in the case of um, late stage kidney disease, where the uncarboxylated MGP levels are very high. They are brought down with. Um, increasing, they're brought down dose dependently by MK7, 
not, and it, there's no evidence that MK7 is better than any other form, but that's the form that's been t- tested in that context. Um, and nothing has been higher. No doses have been used that have brought it down all the way to normal. Uh, and the highest doses that have been used have been the most effective. And and so I have extrapolated from that study, just sort of like a linear extrapolation suggests that in uh, kidney disease, you are dealing with a requirement somewhere around three to four milligrams. And you could extrapolate from that, that other situations like heart disease, where you know that you have a higher demand for protecting against calcification would similarly involve high amounts like that. Um, you know, but outside of the specific context of disease states with a high demand for MGP, I don't really see a reason for going above 200 micrograms. If you're supplementing with vitamin E, it sort of um, depends how much, but generally speaking, I would say you might want to increase another couple hundred micrograms of vitamin K for every 20 IU or so vitamin E. Um, and most vitamin E supplements are are too high in dose. There's really uh, no basis for going higher than 150 IU of vitamin E for anyone. And even in that, uh, even at that dose, the only, uh, do, the only context where it's shown utility is in protecting against age-related declines in immune function. Um, and so I generally don't recommend using high-dose vitamin E. I would stay somewhere around like to- the 20 IU er- er- area. And then if you're trying to adjust your vitamin K intake, you're adding another one or 200 micrograms of vitamin K for every 20 IU that you go up in, in each increment after that. But sort of like ba- baseline good intake would be two, one to 200 micrograms of K2 um, plenty of leafy greens in the background and 20 IU or so of vitamin E. Then the next question is uh, brands that don't exceed a thousand micrograms would have both. Uh, off the top of my head, I'll say the Inovix, uh, the Inovix um, supplement has like 600 micrograms. If I recommend, if I recall correctly, and has both of them in it. And then um, I'm quite sure if you just search into Amazon, MK4, MK7, you will find other examples. Um, but Inovix is one. And uh, I'd be surprised if it's the only one listed in my uh, Ultimate Vitamin K2 resource. But there's, you know, if you go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash K2, even though it was written several years ago, uh, the, the top three supplements listed include Inovix, and there's a there you can pop open a review of, of uh, additional brands. I haven't kept up with all the. There's just been a proliferation of of so many brands that are so redundant in what they're supplying. So I haven't really kept up with uh, you know every single supplement that's on the market. But Inovix is one. All right, thank you for your question. Looks like we have. Um, See, so we have a couple of hands raised. So Eva Klein has her hand raised. Eva Klein, I'm promoting you to a panelist and you can come on and ask your question. 
Uh, looks like you're muted. There we go. Hi. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I asked the same question, I think, on the forum, and you answered, but I still don't understand clearly. My question is about vitamin D. Um, what is the really different between the active vitamin D 1.25 and the 0.25? And which one is really, so what is the connection for VDR um, receptor? Which one is important to look for? Anytime I supplement with vitamin, vitamin D, my vitamin um, D 1.25 is rising. So I just cannot see the, the difference and the question. So um, when you consume vitamin D or you get it from the sun, it's 25 hydroxylated in the liver to 25 OHD. And then it is one hydroxylated primarily in the kidney to 125 dihydroxy vitamin D. And that circulates in the blood as an endocrine hormone that is uh, primarily serving to regulate serum calcium. And then there are many other cells that can also take 25-OHD and convert it to 125 themselves. Although it's, it's controversial how much 125 any cell gets for itself versus from the blood. And so, for example, in immune cells, uh, immune cells are one of the major cells other than the kidney that can make their own 125. Although there is significant evidence that they're actually getting most of their 125 from the blood and are just making a little bit more themselves. Um, classically, in the sort of like standard explanation, they'll tell you that 125 is what's acting on the vitamin D receptor and that 25 is acting as a reservoir for it in the blood. And that the reason we look at 25 when we measure vitamin D status and not 125 is because 25 is generally going up when you are better nourished with vitamin D and down when you're not, whereas 125 is generally strongly regulated um, and is, is uh, not going up and down as easily with, as 25 will according to nutritional status. If you dig deep into the molecular mechanisms, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that because uh, although 125 is a thousand times more effective at activating the vitamin D receptor than 25, there's about a thousand times as much 25 as 125 in the blood and probably in the cells. So if you take the two of them together, they're probably having equal activity on the vitamin D receptor um, on average because you know one is a thousand times more potent and it's a thousand times more scarce and the other is a thousand times weaker but a thousand times more abundant. And so... My suspicion is that if we were to, and it is, it so happens that um, it's also the case that uh, 25 is usually reported in units of nanograms per milliliter and 125 in picograms per milliliter, which are a thousandfold different. And so you could actually take those two numbers and add them together and you have an apples to apples comparison because you're adding the thing that's a thousand times weaker and a thousand more abundant in units that are a thousand times larger to the thing that's a thousand times 
stronger, a thousand times more scarce in units that are a thousand times smaller. Um, so I, that was quite a mouthful. But what that means is that if your 25 is 50 and your 125 is 50 and you sum 50 to 50 to 100, you that is probably a pretty reasonable um, depiction of the total biological activity. And you could you could do the same addition at 25 and 75 or 15 and 40, and it's always going to scale together. So then I still don't understand why we don't measure both every time because mine 1.25 is always on the highest normal range, let's say normal range around 70. And then the 0.25 is always on the lowest around 30. So that it means I'm around 100 and it's that is okay. And you would not supplement. I think it depends on the response to the supplementation. So I, I actually am, I don't, I don't, I don't advocate the standard approach at all. I think it's a mistake to not measure the other things in the pathway, but I think it's also a mistake to not measure PTH. And so my PTH is basically your body's uh, cry for help to get more vitamin D and calcium. And so when when PTH is in the upper half of the normal range, it's too high, and it indicates that you have a deficiency of one or the other. Usually, one twenty five is like if let's say PTH is twenty, which is in the bottom third of the reference range, you probably don't need more of either of those things because your PTH is is probably maximally suppressed. It probably wouldn't go down any further if you added more vitamin D or calcium. Now. On the other hand, let's say your PTH is in the top half of the reference range and it's 40, then your body is signaling that you need more of vitamin D or calcium. In that case, then usually the 125 is going to be higher when your problem is you don't have enough calcium and your 125 is going to be lower when you don't when you do have enough calcium. And so it's probably more a vitamin D thing that you need. So the algorithm is... First, is PTH in the bottom half or the top half of the reference range? If it's in the top half or higher, you have a problem. If it's in the bottom half or lower, you don't. If you have a problem, then you go to the next step, which is, is the calcitriol towards the top of the range or towards the middle of the range? If it's from the top of the, of the range, you should look at your calcium intake. If it's substantially lower than 1,000 milligrams a day, you should consider it plausible that you need to add more calcium. Um Whereas if it's towards the middle of the range or certainly towards the bottom of the range, then you probably need more vitamin D. Um, and that's not an absolute rule, but it's a general probability factor. And so you should also consider like, you know, do I eat vitamin D? Am I supplementing? Do I get outdoor sunshine? Is my calcium intake 100 milligrams a day or 1500 milligrams a day? So you have to look at those things. But in that analysis, you should bias yourself towards thinking you need more calcium when the when the 125 is higher and bias yourself towards believing you need more vitamin D when the 125 is lower. Awesome. 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 Thank cool. you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Take care. You too. Um, All right. And we also have Lauren Davis's hand is raised. So Lauren, I will promote you to a panelist if you have the next question. Hey, 
Okay. Hi, okay. Lauren. So, um, hi. My questions relate to sunflower lecithin, taking right. sunflower lecithin for fatty liver problem. Okay. And um, I kind of am wondering whether or not there's any data or whether or not you have a sense of how things change like over a year of taking it, particularly in terms of imaging fat in the liver, whether or not that um, just disappears or if it kind of like alters its, uh, you know, how it's located in the liver. Also, um, does weight loss happen after taking sunflower lecithin? And if so, does that happen more likely at the beginning or at the end of a year or unrelated? And also, um, so it sounds like if you have dietary fat, then your sunflower lecithin, if you're taking that, would kind of be tied up in taking care of the dietary fat rather than taking care of the fat that's stored in your liver. Is that correct? Can you say that last part one more time? Sure. Um, so if you're, if a person is taking sunflower lecithin and they're also consuming fat in their diet, which everybody's going to be consuming some kind of fat, right. I guess I'm thinking more of like a keto diet or something where you might be consuming a huge amount of fat. Is that like counterproductive? Um, because the sunflower lecithin. Oh, for, you mean is that is that going to increase the fat in your liver? Um, or does the sunflower lecithin get um, tied up? Does it just kind of like preferentially end up taking care of the dietary fat and and not getting around to taking care of the fat that's been stored in the liver for too long? Yeah. All right. Um, I think that. So your the second part of your question is is a simple one, and I'll answer that first. So um, it is it while it is not the case that uh, so first of all, it is the case that the sunflower lecithin will help you absorb the fat from the diet. Um, it is not the case that that then detracts from its ability to remove the fat from the liver because they're both getting absorbed and then they can both get repackaged. However, it is the case that in that fat will increase the amount of fat that goes through your liver, and that will then um, that will then put a tax on the amount of choline that's required to remove the fat from the liver. And so, if you think about the inputs of fat into the liver, you basically have. Um, I should back up for a second and just say. So fatty liver is basically an in versus out uh, equation where, where out can then be further broken into two components. One is exported and the other is burned for energy. Um, so, you know, some other people might prefer to phrase it as fatty liver equals fat in minus fat minus the sum of fat burned and fat exported or something like that. Um, but the, po the point is that there's two, there's one way fat gets into the liver and that's for fat to come in. And there's uh, two ways to get rid of it. One is to export it into the blood and the other is to burn it for energy. And so choline, um, which is what the sunflower lecithin is giving you, is allowing fat to come out of the liver. And then anything that would determine the liver's, uh, the rate at which the liver would beta oxidize fatty acids for energy 
it would be another way that fat would leave the liver if it's just combusted. Um, and so in terms of the ways that fat get into the liver, one is from diet and the other is from the blood. Um, the, you know, if you, if it, if you eat the fat and the, well, actually the two ways to get fat into the, into the blood would be eat fat. It travels through the lymph and then gets, and then gets into the general circulation or to release stored fat from adipose tissue. If it's coming from the visceral abdominal fat, it's opening directly into the portal vein and going into the liver. And so that's much more pro fatty liver because all of it goes through the liver. It, all your other fat depots are releasing into the general circulation. So the diet and the general circulation, uh, the diet and the non-visceral fat pads are both releasing uh, fat into the general circulation before it gets to the liver. And so it's some portion of that fat that gets into the liver Whereas the visceral abdominal fat pad is emptying directly into the liver. So all of it goes into the liver. So if you put those risks in perspective, the visceral abdominal fat pad is way worse than dietary fat. And it's way worse than, um, than all the other fat pads that can release it. Because dietary fat and all the other fat pads are going into the blood, circulating through the whole body. Only some of it's going into the liver. Now... Um, in terms of other dietary inputs, then you could compare that to protein or you could compare it to starch or you could compare it to sugar and then you can compare different fats. And among the different fats, the ones that are more easily beta oxidized are the least likely to increase fatty liver. So MCTs are the least likely because, or I mean really short chain fatty acids and then MCTs because those are so easily burned for energy. The longer the chain uh, in the fats, so the long chain fats are, are, are going to increase liver fat more. Polyunsaturated fatty acids, although they are bad for the progression of fatty liver from simple fat accumulation, which is called steatosis, to oxidative stress and inflammation, which is called uh, steatohepatitis or NASH, um, and is, is what drives further disease progression towards eventually in a subset of people, uh, cirrhosis and liver failure. Um, polyunsaturated fatty acids are bad for that progression, but because they are more easily beta oxidized for energy, they are less likely to, to increase liver fat than long chain saturated fats are. Um, so there's basically a hierarchy of long chain saturated fats that, and monounsaturated fats are quite similar, maybe a little bit less um, then, then long chain PUFAs are less, and then medium chain fats are even less, and then short chain fats are even less. Um, and then after that, basically sugar is next because sugar can be turned into fat, but sugar is turned into a fat at a very low rate. So in humans, um, generally between one gram and ten grams of of carbohydrate are converted to fat per day. And if you eat a low carbohydrate diet, you're getting about one or two grams of carbohydrate converted to fat. And if you eat a 55% sugar diet, you're going to push that up to 10 grams. But 10 grams of, of carbohydrate converted to fat is very small compared to what even someone on a low carbohydrate, I mean, on a, on a, um, on a low fat, high carbohydrate diet is eating more fat than 10 grams. So... So converting sugar to fat is never anywhere near as important as dietary fat because you just the only exception to that rule 
is when your total carbohydrate exceeds your total energy expenditure. And the only time that ever happens is in a hot dog eating contest or a tribal fattening ritual. So, you know, no one, no, even someone who's picking out on ice cream is never going to eat more carbohydrate than the total amount of energy that they needed for that day because they have other things in their diet. I mean, even, even ice cream, right? You, it, it, only a portion of that is coming from the sugar. Um, and so if you, if you look at, if you think of the sunflower lecithin as providing choline that is meant to export fat from the liver, then the way that that is getting taxed is by increasing the amount of fat in the liver. And so any fat from the diet is going to be the principal thing in the diet that is increasing liver fat, even though it's not anywhere near as bad as the abdominal fat pad, and even though there are other things such as, as sugar. Protein in the diet is generally going to increase the amount of choline that you have because some of it is synthesized from protein, not just gotten from the diet. So generally a you know generally protein is anti-fatty liver um and in fact old animal experiments from the first half of the 20th century showed that protein sulfur amino acids and choline were the three things that would totally cure fatty liver whether it was caused by alcohol sugar or fat and that's because um protein provides sulfur amino acids sulfur amino acids synthesize choline choline is choline and so if you provide the precursors or the choline, you're, you're, that, that's how many anti-fatty liver effect. Starch is neutral. Um, sugar is, is slightly pro-fatty liver. Fat is pro-fatty liver. Um, Long-chain saturated fats are the most pro-fatty liver and short-chain uh, and medium-chain fats are the least. Polyunsaturated fats are in the middle. And all of that is is... It's not when I say pro fatty liver, I just mean that in the equation of fatty liver equals fat in minus the sum of fat burned and fat out, then um, then that's increasing the fat in part of the equation. But as long as you are increasing the other parts of the equation, fat burned or fat, fat exported, then you you don't wind up with fatty liver if if that sums to zero or negative, right? So. If that if that sums to zero, you you have your liver is as fat as it is currently, and it doesn't change. If that equation sums to negative, then you're reversing fatty liver over time. Now, in terms of how long that would take, um, that all depends on how negative that equation is, right? So if 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 fat if fatty liver, I should say fatty liver progression or the delta of fatty liver equals. Um, fat in minus the sum of fat burning plus fat exported. If delta fatty liver is 0.01% per day, then it's going to take you a lot longer to reverse fatty liver than if de delta fatty liver equals negative 30% per day. And so I wouldn't want to be on 30% per day because that that's a too much stress in the body to move anything that in that quantity that fast. But, but the point is that it could take weeks to reverse fatty liver. It could take years depending on, on how negative that, that equation is. Um, and if, if you look at studies that revert, that's caused fatty liver by withdrawing choline from the diet or that, um, 
or that or like on TPN where they caused fatty liver by not having choline in the TPN and reversed it, you're generally looking at it taking weeks to reverse fatty liver if or cause it if you are kind of putting the pedal to the metal on that dietary change that you're making. What's TPN? I'm sorry, total parenteral nutrition is, or TPN is when you are fed a diet completely intravenously. And that's done when uh, there are extreme situations where you're unable to eat. Okay. Um, And anything about imaging the liver, um, fat in the liver? Yeah. So those are, I mean, that those, those studies are based on imaging the liver. And so in studies where imaging the liver was an endpoint, then they set the threshold at whatever they set it at, probably 5% or something like that. Um, then in a matter of weeks, you can change the imaging to have more fat or less fat and you can cross that threshold. Now, Crossing that threshold obviously depends on how far you are away from that threshold as well. You know, so if if you if you set the if you say greater than five percent represents some steatosis and you've gone to seven percent in three weeks, it's probably going to take you three weeks to get back to under five percent um, by just reversing whatever dietary change that was. Um, but it you know if you're if you've pushed that to a much higher fat percentage, it's going to take longer, obviously. But there's, you know, if, if something is um, taking longer than a matter of weeks to show any change on imaging, it is uh, it is either working very slowly or it's not working. Um, and it would be, it would be, if it is working, it's you know it's working more slowly than you want it to. If you're expecting to see a change and you don't, okay. But your and so that I bring back to the other part of your question was was is dietary fat um, detract like detracting from it? It's not that you can't eat dietary fat and and reap the benefits of it, but you are raising the choline requirement when you have more fat in the diet and. Uh, there, you know, in along other animal experiments that were done um, along many decades ago, there was one that showed that if you feed an animal butter or corn oil, you're increasing the choline requirements substantially when you feed butter. And even though butter is is probably good for you, and even though corn oil in the context of fatty liver actually causes animals to go from simple steatosis to NASH, which is, you know, which is going from like a predisposition to a disease state, to an active disease state, um, it is still the case that choline is, uh, that, excuse me, that corn oil, because it's PUFAs, is beta oxidized at a higher rate than saturated fats. And so in the equation of uh, delta fatty liver equals fat in minus sum of fat burned plus fat exported, it's, uh, it's fat in, but it's also amping up the fat burned part of that equation more than the butter is. And so what you see is it requires a higher choline, a higher, uh, choline intake to prevent fat accumulation in the liver there. Um, and so it's, it's just a matter of the relative balance of, of, those, of those things. So yeah, I think, I think, uh, a, a, um, I think a high fat diet is going to require considerably more choline to export the, fatty, the uh, fat from the liver. Okay. 
Um, and just incidentally, so does any sort of like a supplement that is called phosphatidylcholine, if one needed to take something other than sunflower lecithin for a while, would that um, should it react the same if you're um, gauging your dose on how much choline is in it? Yes, um, but you want to keep in mind that uh, whereas in the past I've I've stated that you know sunflower lecithin has roughly the lecithin of an egg yolk, which is like 136 milligrams of choline. If you're using a sup like a capsule that says the amount of phosphatidylcholine on it, you have to um, basically eight percent of that is choline. So you you have you have to um, I think that's right. You got to do fifteen percent. Is it? Um, I thought you'd said fifteen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you might be right. Um, I defer to what I to what I said before. I might have I might have been um, switching around what you multiply by versus what you divide by. So whatever it says in the cliff notes is uh, is the right one. Yeah. Okay. All right. So as long as you calculate it based on the amount of choline, then you can substitute. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so oh, much. You're welcome, Lauren. Thank you for your question. Thank you. All right. Um, looks like we're going back to the Q&A box. All right, next question is from Joan Hutchinson. Joan says, any recommendation for prenatal vitamins? One daughter cannot eat beef or chicken and daughter-in-law cannot handle milk, but yogurt is okay. How much freeze-dried liver is okay? Is there anywhere you summarize vitamins should get for pregnancy in one place? Um, I don't have a specific prenatal vitamin to recommend. I I do I do like um seeking health although I remember seeing something that I didn't like about their prenatal vitamins. Let me let me bring it back up because I haven't looked at it in a while. Um One second. All right. Um,
I think there's a little too much selenium in it uh, for for most people. Um, but it's pretty good overall. Um, yeah. Um, Seeking Health might be the best one. Um, but, uh, yeah, but off the top of my head, I don't have a, a, a specific favorite uh, as if I've gone through all the prenatal vitamins. Um, one daughter cannot eat beef or chicken and daughter-in-law cannot handle milk, but yogurt is okay. How much freeze-dried liver is okay? Uh, you know, the equivalent of eight ounces of uh, liver per week is is fine um I don't, it's unclear to me whether you're talking i'm not sure if these are separate questions or the same question um if someone's becoming pregnant if someone's planning pregnancy they should probably drop the liver to eight ounce to uh four ounces per week um until the first eight weeks of pregnancy are over uh just as a Precaution. Um, summarize the vitamins should get for pregnancy in one place. I do not have that, but that will definitely be in my book when I finish it. One second, guys. I'm going to open the window because it's the heat is uh, reaching 78 here. So one second. Kept that that window open. I mean, closed for the noise, but it's uh, it's getting hot in here. Okay. Um, Gary Krieger has the next question. Oh wait. Uh, oh, I think Joan has a follow up. Joan, I'm going to promote you to panelist. Hi, Chris. Hi, John. Uh, they're both pregnant to answer your question. Oh. Uh, currently. And what I'm noticing too is a problem with getting the choline, where before all the prenatals had seemed to have dihydrogen citrate. But in the last, I looked again a couple of days ago, and now it's changing to coal, um, sorry, from choline by tartrate to dihydrogen citrate. And I can't find anything on this product, let alone if it's safe for pregnant women, even though it's in the prenatals now. I've never even heard of it. Choline dihydrogen citrate? It's dihydrogen citrate. And it's replacing choline by tartrate in the prenatals. Or some of them. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like any of them. Uh, I mean, I, I would, I would very much prefer to have phosphatidylcholine as a, okay as a source of choline. Um, so Seeking Health doesn't have choline in it, is that correct? I, you know- I can look it me, up. Uh, yeah, um, I'll look right now. So, um, let 
They have uh, they have choline as choline by tartrate, and I don't like that. I'd rather use one that doesn't have choline and add some eggs or uh, or sunflower lecithin or something. Yeah, I agree. Um, after learning from you, I agree. <laughs> Clarify. Um, in cod liver oil, I have gone all over the map with what to, is a good product. And I think what I came up with was the dropy extra virgin. Is that who? safe for pregnancy? I'm sorry, who? Dro- I think dro- it's dropy. Oh, how do you spell that? Something like D R O P I. Yeah, D R O P I. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it. Um, fresh, pure, and Icelandic. Uh, and, and why do you like that uh, so much? Because uh, I saw ratings on it and it's extra virgin. <laughs> and I can get it in Canada. There's oh, okay. all these parameters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know anything about the Canadian market uh, for cod liver oil. But yeah, I mean, I, like, I just in principle, what I would want to look at is are they, are they, uh, are they taking out the natural vitamins and then putting synthetic ones in to reconstruct no. a cod liver oil or is it, you know, genuinely natural? And so, I, you know that's the that's the big differentiator on on quality besides the obvious things like you know where are they sourcing it and is it um you know is it from polluted waters or is it from pristine waters and you know sort of like uh, obvious things like that and like do they you know treat it well or do they uh do they like put it through heat and processing and deodorization all that stuff um you know, so I, I think if it checks all the boxes on the obvious quality markers and and it is and it's naturally occurring vitamins um, that are meeting your needs, then it then the I would say it's it's good quality, although I'm not familiar with the specific brand. And any other tips for pregnancy? Well, that's a very general question. Um, I, you know, I would look uh, specifically at uh, biotin in particular. So most women, um, spontaneous, not most women, about a third of women become spontaneously biotin deficient during pregnancy. Um, I have an article, an old article on the Weston A. Price site, Nutrition for Fetal Development um, from Conception to Birth that I think I pretty much mostly still agree with. Um, I did write it a long time ago, but um, it, it covers a lot of that stuff. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any more specific questions about pregnancy? Just where can I get the article that you mentioned? Uh, yeah, okay. Let me um, let me pull it up now and uh, and put it in the chat. And uh, I think, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Before you had the main vitamins for pregnancies: vitamin A, folate, iron, choline, and biotin. Is that correct? Those are the key ones. I'm I'm sorry. Where did you? Uh, what are you referring to? Uh, something that you wrote. Um, oh, I know what it was. One of these Q and A's. Oh, and right. you answer um, that question. Okay. So I just I just posted um, that article in the chat, um, okay. and then you know in, in that article I I outline um, more than that. Um, and then I I don't remember the list that you just said. What was it? A vitamin A. Vitamin A. Yeah. Folate. Yep. Iron. Choline. Yep. 
biotin. Yeah. So, so vitamin A, um, vitamin A is, is uh, very important for gene expression and, um, it's something where you really don't want to go over 10,000 IU a day for the first eight weeks of pregnancy because there's some, I wouldn't say high confidence data, but there is there is some highly controversial data, I would say, on whether that might be increasing the risk for birth defects in, um, in the first eight weeks. That's why I had said earlier that I would drop liver to like four ounces a week instead of eight during, you know, leading up to the first eight weeks of pregnancy. Um, but, uh, I mean, folate obviously has uh, sort of famously is involved in preventing neural tube defects. Um, yeah, most women's iron requirement goes up really high in pregnancy due in part to blood expansion and in part in because of transfer of iron to the fetus. Um, biotin, as I had mentioned before, is um, is uh, like just 30% of women become deficient when they go pregnant because the, the needs increase so much. Um, and uh, yeah, then there's, check out that article that I'd written. There are some other nutrients that are covered in there. And of course, all the nutrients are important to, to pregnancy, even if they might not you know, have specific research that's highlighted their, their, you know, specific role or specifically increased needs. Uh, you know, you certainly, a a um, a, a baby growing, growing inside a mother has all the same nutritional requirements that the rest of us do. So. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Thank you, Joan, for your question. All right, next question is from Gary Krieger. Uh, Gary says, after lunch, after drinking lunch smoothie with banana, honey, milk, whey, gelatin, cacao, peanut powders, coconut oil, raw carrot, and spinach, my hands instantly become cold when comfortably warm prior. I assume a thyroid cortisol issue, but with healthy whole food diet, no food group restriction supplementation, um, multi with zinc and selenium, exercise, healthy weight for years, no improvement, eat three plus calories a day with 100 grams of protein. Um, I don't see a Gary, I don't know what your question is. Is your question, what do you, I guess your question must be, what do I think is going on? Um, so, I mean, my, my first question is how cold your smoothie is because, you know, these, I mean, granted, some of this stuff is uh, probably not refrigerated, like the banana, the honey, the whey protein, the cacao, the coconut oil. I'm guessing that the milk is refrigerated and the carrot and spinach are refrigerated. You know, so one question might be like whether this is, is just cold, uh, a cold drink. But, you know, the thyroid, um, you know, unless, unless you just, you know, you, it's, it's well within plausibility that your metabolism just drops in the afternoon as well. Um, so I guess my question would be, are you sure it always happens only when you drink this smoothie and always when you drink this smoothie? 
if it's a thyroid thing, I mean, this this isn't even uh, high in goitrogens or anything like that. So that seems kind of unlikely to me. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I I I wonder whether you. I wonder whether you get cold during uh, during the afternoon from your metabolism slipping, or if uh, or if you're just uh, drinking a cold smoothie. I mean, I don't know what to tell you beyond that. Thanks, Gary, for your question. All right, next question is from Peggy Laughlin. All right, Peggy says, how to know which to take or what combo regarding one citicoline, two phosphatidylcholine, three uh, PEA pomatoyl ethanolamide. Um, I don't know what your goals are, so I don't know. I don't know why. Um, I mean, I wouldn't take citicoline for anything. I would use phosphatidylcholine. Um, I don't know why you're treat, taking pomatoyl ethanolamide or what it has to do with um, why you're taking choline. Uh, but my default would be to use phosphatidylcholine. Um, I mean, from choline, uh, out of, out of um, the main choline sources, uh, trimethylglycine or TMG, which is not a form of choline technically, but is the the is what is you what you turn choline into when you use it for methylation is best to support methylation. Phosphatidylcholine is best to support triglyceride export from the liver and uh and bile um function and um and alpha GPC is is best to promote acetylcholine synthesis and other than that I wouldn't use any other forms of choline. Um so all right this uh this phosphatidylcholine percentage thing I'm gonna set, settle once and for all. Um so the molar mass of phosphatidylcholine is three fourteen twenty five the molar mass of choline is 104 wait a second is that right 1041 um no i'm not going to do the i'm not going to do the calling thing now um peggy says uh TMG and alpha oh alpha GPC so alpha glycerophosphocholine is alpha GPC G for glycero P for phospho and C for choline and alpha GPC is uh, the best form of choline used for boosting acetylcholine which is um, which is used for uh, you know sustained focus attention and memory and things like that. 
All right. Thank you, Peggy, for your question. All right. The next uh, question is from Timothy Roman. Timothy Roman says, how does anemia or iron deficiency lead to tongue swelling? Low folate can also affect the tongue and there's also geographic tongue. I personally have spots, tingling, swelling, teeth marks, and sometimes it's pale, all likely related to low iron that I'm about to address with some correlation with low cortisol. Why do so many things affect the tongue compared to other muscles? Why is there so little attention given to its signs? Um, I do not know how anemia and iron deficiency lead to tongue swelling. Um, and I don't know why the tongue would be more effective than other muscles. And I don't know why people pay less attention to the tongue. Sorry, I can't answer your question, Timothy. I apologize. All right, Karen Allen has the next question. Karen says, I've been taking thiamine 100 milligrams per day and it helps with a chronically elevated heart rate that I've had for most of my life. Can you tell me what the mechanism of action might be that causes this improvement? I was advised to take it by what I'll call a progressive nutritionist, but I neglected to ask him why it helps. The improvement has made quite has been quite dramatic. Um, I do not know why it would help. Um, I you know I guess unless your um, unless your heart rate is elevated due to thiamine deficiency. Um, so thiamine deficiency can lead to an enlarged heart. I don't know the details of, of all the different things that happen with the heart. And I'm not sure what the mechanism is, but if I had to wager a guess out of thin air, I would say that, that, um, if you're thiamine deficient, your metabolism is not working properly and you're not making ATP as efficiently. And so you're going to have to pump more oxygen to get the uh, the same amount of energy derived from your food. And then you are also going to have to generate more CO2 to get the same amount of C uh, ATP because the CO2 is generated based on how many, um, <clears throat> how much, how many food molecules you break apart and not on how much ATP you get. So if your ATP is being produced at a, at a less efficient yield, then you are going to have to, to generate more CO2 from it. Um, you're you're going to have a higher demand for oxygen and therefore you're going to have a higher demand for gas exchange in terms of getting oxygen to your cells and removing carbon dioxide from them. And more oxygen, more exchange for gas, for ga uh, more demand for gas exchange is going to drive a higher heart rate. That's that's uh, my guess pulled out of out of thin air, but I don't know if it's correct. So I hope my speculation was helpful, but I, I know it's not a real answer to your question. Thank you, Karen. 
All right, next question is from Kate. Kate says, I want to recommend taking glycine as a supplement for better sleep to some older family members. Is there an inter any interaction between glycine and aspirin that would be a reason to not recommend glycine? Do you know of any interactions between glycine and other common medications? Um, well, I mean, the big, the big interaction is that glycine is used to remove salicylate from the body. Um, and so it'll in, it'll increase uh, aspirin detoxification, but I don't I don't know that it'll actually like increase the dose of aspirin that you would need for a given effect, but it's possible it would. Um, because of that, and then, um, but I I don't I don't know if it, there would be any sort of um, any any interaction besides. The detoxification aspect. Um, but I mean, you know, many, I don't, I don't know, off the top of my head, I don't know what um, medications, what the collection of medications are that are detoxified with glycine, but glycine is a common detoxification agent. Um, so I, I don't think it would interact with many medications um, in a direct way at the at the um sort of uh pharmacodynamics of it meaning at the level of what the medication is mechanistically doing to achieve its outcome uh but it it may well increase the rate of removal of many medications from the body and i i don't have any idea off the top of my head what the full collection of uh medications are that are glycinated but but aspirin is one of them uh so hope that helps but I, I don't I don't think it's a problem recommending it for sleep. I mean uh, they in all likelihood they're probably not taking aspirin uh, while they sleep. And so it's probably fairly distant from the aspirin. Um, but I guess uh, you know you might want to bring up the possibility that they might need to use more aspirin might need to increase the dose or something like that, um, even though I don't know that that would be the case. All right. Thank you, Kate, for your question. Next question goes to RB. RB says, in your choline calculator tool, I had a methylfolate score of 73% decrease. Besides the calculator recommendation of increasing choline to the equivalent of egg yolks, are there any other nutritional recommendations that you would have? Blood test serum folate is greater than 20 nanograms per milliliter and vitamin B12 is sufficiently high, 1300 picograms per milliliter. And then RB details his methylfolate score. Um, besides the choline, I would uh, follow my follow my MTHFR protocol. Um, you know, with a 73% decrease, that's roughly equivalent to 70, you know, to a homozygous uh, C677TMTHFR status. And so I believe that my MTHFR protocol can be found at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash MTHFR. Um, start here for methylation and, uh, 
And then you can, uh, then there's a button that says click here for my MTHFR protocol. And then it has the, uh, the protocol left, let out. So I'll put that link in the chat. Um, but that's where I would follow up for, for, uh, further help. Thanks, RB, for your question. Next question is from Forrest Schaff. Forrest says, are there types of supplements that should probably be discontinued during a fast, especially a multi-day fast, three to five days? I assume electrolytes. What about methylation support, pre-probiotics, sleep, or other types? Um, well, it depends what your goal for the fast is, but you know, just generally speaking, there are some supplements that that are kind of neutral and some that are more fasting state oriented and some that are more fed state oriented. Um, so I generally methylation support is going to be very fed state oriented, but, but I would, um, you know, I would distinguish between, um, like SAMe, which is just overwhelmingly the, the thing that is higher in the fat in the fed state all the time and actually actually stimulate fed state processes like mTOR signaling i would distinguish that from like folate or b12 which is not directly and acutely raising the same level but just is just a raw material that you're using um to raise same so you know out of methylation support then um Methionine and SAMe are, I mean, methionine to some extent and SAMe to a extreme extent are fed state uh, supplements and should be discontinued during a fast. Um, I mean, I would I would just sort of think of like what are the things that increase the fed state signaling, and so the fed state signaling is composed of insulin, it's composed of mTOR. It's composed of shutting down AMPK. It's composed of ATP, NADH, and citrate. Um, so you might want to consider not consuming citrate during a fast. Um, you know, even though the amount of citrate that you'd get from like magnesium citrate, for example, is probably kind of small compared to the amount of citrate that you would generate from eating food. Uh, but still, citrate is a, is a fed state signaling compound. Anything that stimulates insulin, um, any of the amino acids that stimulate mTOR, so like leucine, arginine, uh, and SAMe are, are big ones. Um, calories, carbohydrates, you know, anything that stimulates insulin, anything that generates ATP. Um, most supplements are going to fall into, uh, like electrolytes. I would not, I'd call them neutral because yeah, it's not normal to consume electrolytes, but you're always going to have electrolytes in your body. And you you try to regulate them pretty consistently, whereas whereas the, the the real things that are signaling the fasting fed feeding cycle are things like um, are things like SAMe and uh, and insulin and citrate and 
NADH and ATP, because those those are things that rise in the Fed state and fall during the fasting state. And that's not that's not the case with like sodium or potassium. It doesn't. I mean, maybe there's some fluctuation, but there's not this like, uh, you know, or amino acid levels. Like your plasma amino acids are going to be very high in the Fed state and very low in the fasting state. Um, and uh, pre probiotics, not so much. You know, vitamins, not so much. Um, sleep is, I don't know what you mean by sleep supplements, you know, like melatonin is not course, uh, not correlated with fasting feeding. So it's correlated with the light dark cycle. Um, so I, I hope that answered your question. I mean, I, I guess the summer, the sum of it is just ask these questions. Does it activate insulin? Does it activate mTOR? Um, does it raise plasma amino acids? Does it raise blood glucose? Does it raise insulin? Does it raise citrate? Does it raise NADH? Does it raise ATP? Um, I don't remember if I said mTOR, but M, does it activate mTOR? You know, so if it's yes to any of those questions, then then it's uh, a no for fasting. Hope that helps. Thanks, Forrest, for your question. So Kate says, I'm not seeing the article link. Uh, so you, you, might, you might not be looking in the chat. So there's the Q&A box and then there's the chat. And in the chat, um, oh, you know what? I think um, I didn't realize that uh, my default was chatting to host and panelists rather than to everyone. That's why you can't see it. Um, all right, let me, let me pull it up again. Oh, easiest way to do that is click on it from my chat with the hosts and panelists. Oh no, that's the, um, all right. I got to, that, that means that I also didn't put the MTHFR protocol into the chat. All right. So first up to everyone is the, uh, nutrition and fetal development article. And then second up to everyone is the MTHFR protocol. Thank you for bringing that to my attention, Kate. I apologize for that. All right. RJ Douglas has the next question. And... RJ's question is, could you please comment on what you would recommend as best practices for someone who practices daily intermittent fasting and has a daily eating window of three hours to get an adequate level of protein within those two hours? I've heard that only a certain amount of protein can be absorbed by the body at a given time. For example, would it be helpful to eat the high-protein parts of the meal at the beginning and the end of the two-hour window? Please note that I'm a physically active male in his 30s. Um, well, I'll answer the specific question that you asked because I don't, you know, best practices strikes me as an extremely general question about a 
highly specific eating window. So I'm not sure what direction you want me to go in besides the one that you asked. Um, so yes, it would be helpful to eat high protein at the beginning and the end of the two hour window. And that, I mean, basically like, so the evidence is basically that if you're looking at something like body composition, your total protein is more important than like protein frequency, but the total protein requirement is higher if protein frequency is lower. And so I don't think it's that you're absorbing less protein so much it is that there is a limit a limiting rate to muscle protein synthesis. And so your muscle protein that you wind up with is all, is basically a matter of like how fast are you making muscle versus how fast are you breaking it down. And if muscle protein synthesis is capped at a certain rate and you are only eating one meal a day, then if you eat all your protein at once, then, um, you know, you, you can only put so much into muscle protein synthesis at that time. You reach the cap. You can't put any more in. And you don't really have a good way of storing protein as anything other than muscle... Pro- storing amino acids as anything other than muscle proteins. So you're probably going to burn it for energy or um, or store it as fat if, uh, if you exceed the rate at which you can um, synthesize muscle protein. And so... Um, you know, it might take four hours for the amino acid that you eat at any given one time to be absorbed. Um, but if you know, if you eat, if you eat across a two-hour window and you have protein on the back end and the front end, or even better, if you eat across a four-hour window and you have protein on the on the front end and the back end, then you are extending a four-hour window of absorption to basically like an eight-hour drip. And so you are going to, um, you know, you're going to have more coverage of time where you can put amino acids into muscle protein synthesis before you break them down or store them as fat. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, the, the answer is best practice is whatever can spread the protein out more. Um, but the, I mean, the other best practice is eat more protein because if you eat one meal a day, you'll need more protein than if you ate the same amount of protein three times a day. All right. Hope that helps, RJ. Thank you for your question. Um, oh, Forrest has a follow-up. He says... Hi, you misread my question. My question was which supplements, if any, should be continued during the fast, not discontinued. Oh, all right. So I, my main concern, if methylation makes a difference in my brain chemistry, should I be maintaining that or risk symptoms? Well, then my, my correct... The, the answer to your question as, as interpreted correctly is the inverse of the answer that I gave you to it when I read it incorrectly. And so... You know, you can continue anything that is, um, you can continue anything that is not uh, a, a fed state supplement. You know, so if it doesn't raise blood glucose and it doesn't raise blood insulin and it doesn't raise blood amino acids and it doesn't activate mTOR and it doesn't raise ATP and it doesn't raise NADH and it doesn't raise citrate. Then you can continue it. 
Um, you know, but if it's if methylation makes a difference, like I was saying before, it's really methionine and SAMe that are the bed state methylation nutrients. Methionine to I mean, methionine is like a, an amino acid, right? And so it, as an amino acid, it raises blood amino acids and amino acids stimulate insulin to some degree. So methionine as an amino acid is, is a fed state thing, but SAMe is a super fed state thing because SAMe is actually a, a direct signaling product that activates mTOR that is derived from methionine. And it's, it's actually because it's methionine activated using ATP it's actually signaling like um, the combination of protein availability and ATP levels. And so if you're taking it during a fast, you're sort of telling your body a lie, which is that your protein is high, your ATP is high. And so you're activating mTOR um, because you are in the fed state. That's what you're telling your body when you take CME. Um, you know, so your question is, if methylation makes a difference in my brain chemistry, should I maintain that or risk symptoms? I mean, if you can't if you can't fast without taking CME, you might want to ask the question why you're fasting because you're not you're not really fasting if you're telling you if you're sending your body like direct signals that you're feeding, you know. Um, so that's up to you. I mean, I I can't determine your risk reward ratio for fasting. Um, but I, I can just tell you that the biochemistry is such that you are compromising the physiology of fasting if you're taking CME during it. But, you know, folate and B12, not so much. And actually, although folate and B12 usually come with a meal in the fed state, your utilization of folate and B12 is very much a fasting state phenomenon. Like MTHFR is basically shut off in the fed state and turned on in the fasting state. Um, and same thing with methionine synthase, which is what uses uh, the methylfolate that's gotten from MTHFR and uh, and B12 to recycle homocysteine and methionine. That's very much a fasting state phenomenon. So I don't see any problem with taking B12 and folate in the fasting state. Uh, but SAMe for sure is a fed state, uh, fed state supplement for sure. All right. Sorry for misreading your question. Hope that helped. Um, Alicia C has the next question. Alicia says, what major cytokines make sense to test in blood and which ones are a waste of money because they mostly stay local to the site of injury infection? Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't frame it that way anyway. Like whether a blood marker is um, useful ha is not, related to me mechanistic concerns at all. It's related to whether it's validated to reflect the process that you're trying to look for. Um, so for example, uh, like IL-6, why should you measure IL-6? I mean, not out of mechanistic concerns, but because IL-6 has pretty sensitive and specific uh, predict pretty sensitive and, and specific uh, utility as a biomarker for covid mortality you know so if you're if you have covid you should probably measure il6 um, 
if you're in a if you're in a significant risk category um you know if you have uh if you if you have signs of iron deficiency but you're not sure if it's due to inflammation you should probably also measure IL6 because it has been shown to be a useful biomarker in the context of correcting anemia of chronic disease which is anemia driven by inflammation um so it's, I mean, it, the reason that it's valuable to uh, measure IL-6 is not because it circulates. It's because, um, because it, because it has validated utility and in pre, predictive value for some, for various things. So, um, so I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know how to answer that further. A question's like sort of too too general for me. Um, but I but I hope I added something useful in in the framing of that. Thanks, Alicia, for your question. Next question is from Cindy. Cindy says, Thank you so much for hosting these AMAs. Learning a lot. You're welcome. Cindy, I'm glad you're learning. Uh, she goes on, I've been reading about Dr. Bert Berkson's work with alpha-lipoic acid infusions, healing a variety of illnesses. My neurologist has recommended it as well. Three to 600 milligrams daily. IV infusions are usually three to five days a week for three weeks, then less often by IV with a maintenance oral dose. However, I noticed the Andy Cutler view is at odds with Berkson's work and suggests never using ALA long-term Cutler adherents are very vocal on forum groups against ALA used outside of chelation and caution risk of mercury redistributing with long-term use. My amalgams were replaced over 20 years ago for what it's worth. Berkson's published case studies suggesting how safe it is with patients usually receive a regular schedule of infusions with great success. In your view, is ALA 300 to 600 milligrams safe over a long period? Are you familiar with Berkson's work? And if so, what are your thoughts? Thank you for your time and insight. Um, I am not useful for this question at all. Uh, so I'm not at all familiar with Dr. Berkson's work. Um, I have, I uh, am familiar with uh, Cutler, but I have not read his book and I don't read uh, Cutler forums. So, um, you know, I'm familiar with the argument that ALA would redistribute mercury through the body. I mean, I, I guess my question for you uh, not so much a question as just something to think about would be um do you fit the profile of someone that Dr. Berkson has published a case report about or do you fit the person the profile of the person that Andy Cutler is worried would be damaged by redistributing mercury you know so i i think it would be kind of like uh excessively paranoid and myopic to think that because some people have been harmed from redistributing mercury with improper use of ALA that it is a general rule that everyone is mercury toxic and everyone will suffer such harms with ALA use and if they're making that as like an umbrella um uh rule then obviously that's in conflict with um, with Dr. Berkson's case reports. But, you know, more likely is that there's a profile of person who fits what the Cutler folks are concerned about, and there's a profile of person who fits what the Berkson uh, case reports are about. And so I, I think your task would be trying to determine, you know, 
who do you better resemble? Who do you better fit the profile of? The people that have had success with Dr. Berkson's protocol or the people that um, the Cutler groups would hold up as examples of where that can go wrong. Um, and so that's that's my opinion about it. But I have no personal experience with ALA infusions. And so I would take my opinion with a grain of salt. Thank you for your question, Cindy. So Gary Krieger adds to his previous question that it ha that getting cold happens with other foods, not just a smoothie or cold foods. Use this as an example. Happens within two to three minutes of drinking, but rest of body doesn't feel cold. Um, I I don't I don't know exactly what's going on, but if it happens with any food, then that suggests to me that your that your metabolism is dipping. Um, in response to like insulin mediated uh, activation of the of the siesta state in you, and um, I think that's I think that's your body asking for a nap. <laughs> Sorry, I can't be more detailed than that. Joan Hutchinson asks. Notice that prenatal vitamins use. Oh, it looks like I already answered that question. Uh, RB has the next question. RB says, I took a fasting blood test where I was taking a vitamin B complex and that had biotin 350 micrograms. I was taking this daily up to the day before the blood test draw. And then later read your recommendation to discontinue biotin before taking blood tests. So the blood tests invalid. If so, which ones would be affected? How much? In what way? Should I not use those tests as data points? Um, I find it exceedingly unlikely that uh, 350 micrograms of biotin is the day before a blood test and a fasting blood draw is going to throw it off. Um, but I, I haven't done any, any systematic collection yet of the different tests that are affected by biotin, but they're not affected by dietary intake of biotin. They're affected by your plasma level of biotin. So the real question is whether your plasma level was thrown off to something outside of the normal range. And 350 micrograms is not that high of a dose. And if it was the day before the blood test, I kind of doubt that it was um that it was majorly thrown off those blood tests so i would use them but i would just you know generally speaking in the future be uh just a little more conservative about cutting biotin out for a couple of days before lab testing thank you for your question rb Joan wants to know what I think about two multivitamins. One is uh, wait a second. 
Oh, prenatal essentials from Seeking Health, and the other is a metagenics supplement. So, all right, so Seeking Health um, Essentials. It has a much better... I like the fact that it has 70 micrograms of selenium instead of 200. Um, yeah, I think I would use the essentials and then add in the choline as phosphatidylcholine. That's what I would do. Um then now we're looking at uh, metagenics, then prenatal. Let's see if I can. Uh, this image is terribly poor resolution. I can barely read it. Um, I think I like the the seeking health a little bit better than the metagenics. So the like the amount of molybdenum is really low in the metagenics. Um, I mean it, it's 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 okay. Uh, it's it's overall it's overall it's okay but i think i like i think i like the um the seeking health a, a bit better and um i forget though if it has iron in it so let me go look at that it looks like the the seeking health essentials also doesn't have iron in it and if that's the case, then you you want to check iron levels and consider getting like uh, 18 milligrams of iron bisglycinate, um, or you know, or some or some kind of like you know plant source iron or something like that, um, because it, it all in addition to not having uh, choline, it doesn't have iron in it either. All right, thank you, Joan, for your question. Xavier Boteri has the next question. Xavier says, question on chelation, please. Does green tea chelate all metals, iron, calcium, copper, zinc, molybdenum, or just iron, please? 
Uh, I don't know if it chelates all metals, but I've never seen any nutrient that I've never seen any compound study that green tea did not inhibit the absorption of, whether it was a nutrient or a toxin. Xavier says, another quick one, please. Do you have any thoughts on calcium alpha-ketoglutarate supplementation has been linked to recently to slow down in epigenetic aging? See Regivant study. Um, I, well, I, I haven't seen that study and it would be you know helpful if you post a link, but let me see if I can bring it up on uh, on Google or... Google Scholar or uh, let's see, maybe if I spell out calcium alpha ketoglutarate. Let me try PubMed. I'm guessing that you might mean uh, alpha-ketoglutarate in endogenous metabolite extends lifespan and compresses morbidity in aging mice. So they found that it increased um, lifespan with a decrease in levels of systemic inflammatory cytokines. Uh, I don't know if that's what you're talking about. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe if you post a link to the study that you are referring to, I'll I'll take a look at it. But I guess I'm I'm a, the the phrase epigenetic aging has me deeply skeptical. Um, I think that's going to look at like um, methylation of cytosine residues or something like that. And I when I've looked at that in the past, it looked like yeah, it was sort of you know interesting from uh, as something that is deserving of research, but not something that's like validated as a uh, marker of of um, it, you know intervention, like a proxy for healthy longevity. Um, you know, so there's there are co- correlations with aging, but but uh, I don't know. It d- didn't look like it was ready for prime time in terms of you know using it as a proxy for having shown that you did something that extended extended life and health span uh, to me. KM says, like your necklace. Thank you, Kate. That was a gift from my mom for my birthday this past year. Uh, all right. Xavier links to the study. So this is... Oh, might as well share screen, I guess. All right, so uh, Regivant, a potential life-extending compound formulation with alpha-ketoglutarate and vitamins, conferred an average eight-year reduction in biological aging after an average of seven months of use in the true-age DNA methylation test. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is uh, this is what I was talking about. So let me 
Why is my uh, yeah? So they're looking at methylation cytosine residues. I mean, it's it's uh, it's what I it's what I just said. So they, I mean, basically, methylation cytosine residues has um, you know, like correlations with aging that are shown for it, and then you can infer that like you know, you're preventing aging if you're preventing the methylation of cytosine residues, but, uh, but, um, I, 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 when I looked at this last, uh, my impression was that the evidence that if you intervene to change the methylation of cytosine residues, that you have reversed the disease process or, um, slowed biological aging strikes me as just not not ready for prime time. I'm not, I'm not saying it's false. I'm just saying that there's a, a bit of a, a bit of a leap to assuming that you've reversed aging. So, I mean, let's, let's just see if, um, if they have anything else besides that marker, that's interesting. This looks like a lot of uh, statistical analysis of the cytosine methylation marker. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess what I had said at the beginning of answering your question is I still feel that way. So it's it's interesting, but I, um, I, I think more needs to be done to validate that marker as something that is... Uh, you know, legitimately predicting um, the reversal of a disease process that is indicating uh, unhealthy aging. Xavier follows up, if I understood well, green tea inhibits absorption of metals, toxins, and not just iron, right? Uh, yeah, not just metals. It it, in, it inhibits the absorption of dioxin. It inhibits the absorption of vitamin A. It inhibits the absorption of glucose. I've never seen anything that was studied and that green tea did not inhibit its absorption. So I, I'm not saying it inhibits the absorption of everything, but as far as I can tell, it's it's um it's it's inhibiting the absorption of whatever's <laughs> maybe everything, um, but it is certainly many things. Uh, RB says that true for decaffeinated green tea too. I don't think anything has anything to do with the caffeine. So I would be shocked if it was any different for decaffeinated green tea. It's that's almost certainly from the catechins. All right. Thank you for your question, Xavier. Anonymous says... I tend to have lower vitamin D25 OH levels, less than 20 nanograms per milliliter, and I'm still maximally suppressing my PTH and taking extra vitamin D. 
5,000 IU brings me into hypercalcemia, excess calcitriol. Would you recommend I still load dose vitamin D if I get COVID-19 like you recommend the COVID-19 vitamin D article? No. <laughs> if, 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 if taking 5,000 IU of vitamin D gives you hypercalcemia, then you should definitely not uh, supplement with, with vitamin D. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, your, your metabolism is not typical, um, but it, but it is such that I would not, uh, I mean, I wouldn't supplement with 5,000 IU of vitamin D if, if it brings you into hypercalcemia. Does anything in your vitamin D recommendation, your COVID-19 and vitamin D article change for people who are predisposed to lower vitamin D 25-OH levels, but that are the right levels for them? Yeah, I mean, uh, you don't you don't want hypercalcemia. Um, and like I said in that in that uh, vitamin D article, there are a couple of of more obscure studies that strongly indicate that you want to measure calcitriol and PTH, and that you know, for example, there was one study that showed that. Um, the risk of death was was mainly found in people who had high PTH and low calcitriol. So, um, so I think just measuring 25-OHD is missing the point. But unfortunately, uh, you know, all vitamin D studies are consumed with that approach. So I I uh, I am like a lone voice crying in the wilderness on this issue, and um, and no one hears me. But um, but you do, and I think you're not a good candidate for vitamin D supplementation, given what you've explained. Uh, RB follows up. Where on the range do you want calcitriol to be? Um, I I mean I don't care that much about calcitriol so much as hypercalcemia. You don't want to be hypercalcemic, period. But you kind of want to be in the middle of the range. Although, as I was saying before. What we should be doing, in my view, is using uh, the sum of calcitriol and calcidiol to produce a biological activity of vitamin D index, and no one is doing that. Uh, so I'm also a lone voice crying in the wilderness on that as well. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Kate M. says, do you have any... Nutritional recommendations that help out pregnancy, nausea, like molybdenum and B6. Uh, molybdenum and B6. So it, it sounds like you've already, uh, like you've already um, found that. Um, I don't, I don't have any other ones, but I, but I think molybdenum and B6 are are very smart to try. Um, let me see. So let me think through this a little bit. Um, Uh, you, you might want to think about riboflavin and copper a little bit. Um, so, uh, so I think pre you know, pregnancy nausea, I believe, is uh, a result of estrogen increasing hydrogen sulfide gas, um, and that in the in the course of that, it generates sulfite. Vitamin B six binds up sulfite. So molybdenum uh, helps convert sulfite to sulfate. Uh, thiamine might might be helpful as well, since thiamine uh, binds up sulfite. Um, 
hydroxycobalamin might help. That also binds up uh, hydrogen sulfide and maybe sulfide as well. Um, what else? Hydroxycobalamin might be a very interesting thing to try, actually, because uh, because it's sort of normal for a high dose of B12 to not be absorbed, where it would focus more in the gut. Uh, presumably, a lot of that gas is actually. I don't know. I don't know whether this whether in pregnancy the gas is acting in the gut or is acting on like centers of the brain that influence nausea. I'm not sure off the top of my head. So. Um, so I guess I don't know whether you want it with something that acts more in the gut versus more in the blood. Um, but yeah, B6 and molybdenum are the main ones. I mean, B6 actually has some, some data behind it. Uh, so I believe that B6 has been tested at like a hundred milligrams. Um, but I would, I'd, I'd have to look up those studies. I don't, I don't remember what they are off the top of my head. Uh, I probably have them in the, uh, vitamins and minerals class, I probably have that. And uh, molybdenum, you got to play around with it. 150 micrograms is probably a good dose. Um, you know, but it it's probably safe to use more than that. But 150 micrograms is probably the good default dose to try. Thank you, Kate, for your question. Joan uh, posted an article from uh, Weston A. Price. Joan, you might, might want to post that in the um, in the chat, uh, or I guess I will for other other people that want to see it. Uh, All right, I just posted that in the chat. Thanks for the article, Joan. RB says, do you have a broad spectrum balanced trace mineral supplement brand you would recommend? Many of the ones I saw missing key minerals or too high doses of certain minerals. No, and I don't, I don't use stuff like that. Um, like when I use supplements, I use individual supplements because I don't, I don't like much of what's out there. But uh, I mean, con concentrates is one I've used in the past when I've used that. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't, I generally don't use things like that. Sorry. Um, I totally understand why, why the demand is there for them. I just, usually I don't like, uh, multivitamins and minerals when I look at them. <laughs> um, all right. So anonymous says, do you have any rec nutritional recommendations for jittery, restless legs, feeling the need to keep shaking, moving your legs while sitting or lying down? Um, I mean, not as an umbrella thing. I That seems like it could be caused by many things, like um, anxiety or stress or caffeine. Um, I'm not I'm not so sure that's a uh nutritional thing. 
So I, I think that really depends on the context of what is causing that. Um, thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Uh, Anonymous says, Hi, Chris, how can I access this recording? I missed the first hour. Uh, if you're an attendee, you will probably get an email from Zoom when the recording goes up there, and then it will later, after processing, be put up in the master pass, and an email will go out from me with it. Anonymous says, would there be any types of exercise that could impact ATP, mTOR, etc. levels and thus should be avoided during a fast? No, all forms of exercise will decrease ATP, mTOR, etc. and all would be go along well with the fast. Anonymous says, could you comment on what can cause edema that leads to bags under the eyes and what can be done about it? I'm also concerned about dark circles under the eyes. Many people say it's genetic and this does run in my family, but I have the MTHFR gene and I wonder if these eye problems are related to that gene and whether following the MTHFR protocol might alleviate these other problems. Um, so, like, generally speaking, edema is caused by water retention that uh, is greater than what can be cleared through the lymph. Um, and so that water ten retention could be caused by an electrolyte imbalance in that salt uh, holds on to water. And um, it could be influenced by thyroid and that thyroid governs the production of proteoglycans in extracellular matrix that can hold on to water outside the blood vessels in between cells. Um, it can be influenced just by like, you know, maybe, maybe sort of like pro uh, lymph exercises might help in the sense of helping clear water through the lymph. Uh, can be emphasized by anything that is creating um, vascular hyperpermeability. So that's like leakage of fluid through the capillaries and mostly the venules. And that um, that can be caused by the spike protein from COVID. I just wrote about that in the most recent Substack article I put out. And uh, but that but you know anything inflammatory can cause that. So histamine, bradykinin, uh, many other inflammatory compounds. And then sort of uh, like stress and poor sleep are famously responsible for dark circles under the eyes. So I would look at all those. And it's sometimes salt is a matter of progesterone. So like women who have, um, women who have poor clearance of progesterone in the uh, last half of their menstrual cycle after ovulation have more spillage of progesterone into aldosterone, uh, which regulates uh, salt retention such that more salt is retained and more uh, water is held on to. So, so you're looking at, to summarize, you're looking at um, electrolytes, especially salt and potassium. You're looking at 
progesterone, you're looking at thyroid, you're looking at inflammation, you're looking at maybe you're looking at spike protein, I don't know, and you're looking at stress and stress and sleep are the top things that I'd be looking at. Uh, thank you, Anonymous, for your question. All right, last question of the day comes from Anonymous. And Anonymous says, would there be any potential significant health consequences of eating large amounts of spicy foods, particularly cayenne pepper and chili powder on a daily basis? Um, probably not. I mean, these have a pretty strong track record as being uh, used daily at much higher rates than um, like Americans would tolerate in like India and Bangladesh. <laughs> but um, but I, I don't know. I mean, the the uh, capsaicin activates uh, heat and pain receptors. Um, but I don't know that that does anything bad. I mean, it, it, um, no, I, I, I wouldn't worry about it unless you feel like it's doing, if, like it's having a, 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 um, a bad effect on you personally. But if you, if you feel like you're healthy and you're, and you like spicy food, then I would eat, eat away. Um, all right. Thank you everyone for your questions. Uh, Great to be here again. Great to see you again. I'll post when the next AMA is coming up soon. Have a wonderful night, everybody.